Welcome to the My Faith Votes podcast. I'm Megan West. I recently sat down with Pastor J.P. Pacluda in Waco, Texas. He's the author of the new book called Welcome to Adulting. This was such an insightful interview on the next generation and how they think. The knowledge Pastor J.P. has from working with young adults from over a decade is powerful for us to take back to our own churches, communities, and the young adults in our own lives. I hope you enjoyed this fascinating conversation on the church and the next generation. Jonathan Pecluda. Yeah, Megan, you are how are you doing? Good, how are you? So good. You're the lead pastor here at Harris Creek Church in Waco, Texas. Yeah. But people may know you as the leader of The Porch in Dallas, sure. one of the largest gatherings of 20 and 30 year olds. So you really speak to the millennial generation. I have at least, you know, for the last decade. It's That's awesome. what I've been doing. But you have a book out, it's called Welcome to Adulting. Yeah. It's a fascinating book. It's really a book that's guided to help millennials kind of navigate the culture and navigate Christian faith. But for those who don't understand what the term adulting means, mm -hmm. describe that to us. It's just growing up. I mean, for the past, past 10 years, I've seen the lives of tens of thousands of young adults, truly year in and year out. I see the decisions they're making, uh, those mistakes that they make that lead to disaster, and the decisions that they make that lead to life and life abundantly. And so, so much of ministry is just pattern recognition and I would begin to write down, okay, when people do this, it doesn't go well, and when they do this, it goes well, and I would see how that would align with God's instruction in His Word, the Bible. And so, as I wrote down those patterns, it really evolved into this book, Welcome to Adulting, Navigating Faith, Finances, Friendship, and the Future. And that's what the book seeks to help people do, is navigate faith, finances, friendships, and the future. So do you think they need help because they haven't been taught or is there something deeper that you're kind of tapping into as far as the term adulting? Just because it's a catchphrase today. I think everybody probably for generations past have been thrown out of the nest. They launched out of college or whatever it is into adulthood. And there's parts of this, I mean, even today as a 38-year-old, I'm like, gosh, how do I do this? How, how do I survive these challenges? Whether it's you know, anxiety, whether it's uh, some sort of financial burden, um, whether it's career decisions, whether it's moving. We recently moved our family, as you uh, referenced. And so it's like, hey, how do we navigate this the right way? And at the same time, I do think there's something unique about this generation in regards to the it really the invention of the word adulting it just was recently introduced into webster's dictionary because we've been using it and thinking through okay how do we do this like i, I feel like we're beating our heads against this uh, some people are like all right i'm going to go back to school uh, i'm going to move back in with my parents i'm not ready for the real world yet and I just, I want to be a voice alongside them and say, hey, you are ready. And in fact, if you follow this instruction, you're going to find life and find it abundantly. Right. And this book really speaks to millennials and Gen Zers. Mm -hmm. But I think it's helpful for older generations to read it too, to really understand millennials. Yeah. Because there's seems to be a divide in this country with, and this is generational, but older generations saying, oh, the millennials, they're so apathetic, they're yeah, entitled. Yeah. It's the participation trophy generation. Yeah. They're lazy, honorable yeah. mentions. So How do we so bridge that divide, especially having older generations encouraging them to speak into the lives of millennials? Yeah, I, it is, you're right, it is a book that I hope does help the older generation understand the younger generation, and also a book that they can gift to them 
uh, as a not so subtle hint of, hey, I'd love for you to check out this instruction. I think those that divide does have to be bridged, Megan. And I think the way that we do it is with any time we come uh, along differences in any relationship, is begin to appreciate our differences and understand them, seek to understand them, take time to ask thoughtful questions. And a lot of times, you know, that turns into discipleship. And if the older generation would just come alongside the younger generation and disciple them, show them the way and truth, I will tell you, again, I spent a lot of time with them. They're hungry for that. Mm -hmm. They want that. They're desperate for that. But I think there's something that the older generation is threatened by, you know, with their uh, bald fade haircuts and lines in their hair and skinny jeans and tight rolls and, and all the things that make millennials millennials. And if we could just get past that and say, hey, can we spend some time together? I really want to get to know you. And then I don't think they're going to see somebody that's lazy. I think they're going to see somebody that's misguided, but wants to change the world and believes in something bigger than themselves. And and a lot of times they're doing it. That's what the older generation doesn't understand is the younger generation, they're getting after it. They're starting GoFundMes, they're starting companies, uh, they're making it happen. And that's why I love, if I'm gonna spend time with somebody, that's where I'm gonna spend my time. And by the way, that's what Jesus did. Right. On, on Matthew 16, on the side of a hill with some people, he said, hey, I'm gonna start this church and the gates of Hades, aren't, they won't be able to over overcome it. And he's talking to a group of men that are you know, 18 to 35 years old young adults and they're like change the world what are you talking about jesus these people want to kill you and there's only 12 of us and we're not even so sure about judas we don't know <laughs> what team he's playing for and he, and fast forward the tape 2000 years and we gather in place like this and there's one on every corner in america bible in every hotel room that that man started a movement that the world has not been able to stop and we with can young speak adults, into that. right? Yeah. So, what is the millennial generation doing well, and what do you see as one of the biggest challenges that they're facing in our culture today? Yeah, I think, I think they underestimate what they can do with long obedience in the same direction, and I think they overestimate what they can do in the short term, and so what they're not doing well is patience. But what they are doing well is belief, believing that they can change the world. And if they take that belief and they place it in something bigger than themselves, they begin to understand the purpose, why they were created. Then I believe the Holy Spirit, God partners with them and shows them how they actually can, the purpose that he made them for. Uh, Ephesians 2.10, for they are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he's prepared in advance for them to walk in. When they start walking in that and start building the kingdom, displaying the kingdom, uh, I think they, they start to find life. But they're, they're desperate for that. I mean, they're desperate for something bigger than themselves. This is why you see such a passion around social justice mm -hmm. and wanting to make the world a bigger, uh, better place. They care about these things even as they go to work for companies. Is the company green? How do they spend their money? Are they social justice minded? And, and so they're, they're very empathetic towards the needs of the world. They want to meet those needs. So speaking about the needs, especially in our culture, and looking at it from a political point of view, mm -hmm. the millennials and Gen Zers are going to be the largest voting bloc in the 2020 election, but mm -hmm. yet they're the ones that typically don't show up as much as older generations. Mm -hmm. Is there a disconnect there, or what is that disconnect in your opinion as far as getting involved on a political level when they are social justice warriors. Yeah, I, I think there is, there has to be a disconnect because they're also probably 
you know, the first to go to social media and vent their frustrations and the loudest around what they're displeased with. And so I think they have to, in fact, I'd urge them to see themselves as a part of the solution, to go to the polls, to understand that their vote does count, uh, that they, they need to study the issues, um, know what God cares about, uh, know what the different candidates stand for, uh, educate themselves, and then that know that their vote matters. And it's interesting who's done a good job at communicating that. I mean, MTV's done one of the best jobs I've seen, and uh, I think the church needs to do a better job of calling young people to go to the polls, uh, to cast their vote, to, to realize that their vote matters, because without it, you lose your voice. Without a vote, you lose your voice. And so you can't not vote and then complain because you weren't a part of the solution. Do you think the church has neglected some of that role in speaking into Christian millennials to stand on their faith and have courage to speak out in the public square? Yeah, without a doubt. I think there's a, there's a fear amongst pastors and ministers, uh, people in ministry. They don't know what line they can and can't cross. They've heard rumors of, hey, we can lose our 501c3 if we talk about these kinds of things. And so, listen, it is, you're completely within bounds to say, hey, guys, you should cast a vote. You know, you should, you should understand the candidates. You should understand what they stand for, and you should go to the polls. Uh, I don't think the church has, has done that well. Yeah. So you, you talk about a phrase in your book that I think has been detrimental to Generation Z and the millennials, and that's follow your passion. Yes. Speak into that a little bit, and how do you teach millennials how not to look at that phrase as something to live by? So this phrase, follow your passion, has been used exponentially more throughout the years, specifically when you get into the 2000s. And so this, this goes uh, within search terms, uh, but somebody might say, well, that's because Google's new. But also you can see the way that it would show up in print historically is it just has is really um, become something popular amongst millennials. Follow your passions. What are you passionate about? I think one, this has caused a lot of anxiety because millennials are like, I don't know, what am I passionate about? I do think within the day to day, it's you're fine to pursue your curiosities to understand, hey, what am I curious about, and how do what do I want to grow, and what do I want to develop? But we need to go into it with a clear mind and head and understand that your passions have always changed. Like, I mean, look at every relationship you've ever been in. You were passionately in it, and then you were passionately out of it. Any interest, maybe your degrees changed in college or your, your studies changed. Uh, your hobbies, maybe you, you used to love art. Maybe once upon a time you really, uh, basketball was your favorite sport, and now maybe it's been five years since you dribbled the ball. Your passions are constantly changing. So if we follow them, we're going to follow them in and out of relationships, in and out of interest. At some point, commitment has to kick in when our passions wane to carry us into the next chapter. Because as, as many people have said, you know, I think Malcolm Gladwell made famous that um, you know it's 10,000 hours to become an expert at something. Well, within those 10,000 hours, your passions are going to change a thousand times, right? It, not literally speaking, but lots of times. And so how do you uh, maintain commitment once your passion wanes? Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. A lot of times when we say follow, follow your passion, what we're really saying is follow your heart. Songs have been written on this idea that we should follow our heart, follow our interests. The scripture does not say follow your heart, it says inform your heart. In fact, it says in Jeremiah, the heart is wicked and deceitful and beyond cure. Who can know it? And so before we follow a heart, we need to feed it. 
We need, to, we need to tell it where to go, what to take interest in. So don't follow your heart, but inform your heart. Don't just follow your passions, but understand, hey, what do I want to grow in? What do I want to become disciplined in? Again, the scripture says in Timothy, discipline yourself for godliness. That godliness doesn't come with ease, that it comes through pushing through the grind, disciplining ourselves. And I think a lot of times we're adverse to that. When something's hard, we're tempted to think that it's wrong. And just because something's difficult does not mean that it's wrong. Lots of things in life are difficult. And I think the ones that make it and get the most out of life are often the ones that lower their shoulder and push through the difficulty, uh, let, allowing commitment to carry them. Well, and you have a whole chapter focused on conflict. Yeah. And that comes into that. In fact, you say if we could resolve conflict, that would change the nation. Yeah. So how in our such a divided nation where people are so easily offended, how do we effectively talk about conflict and deal with it, especially from a Christian biblical worldview? Yeah, I think we all understand how important relationships are. And every healthy relationship is going to have conflict between any husband and wife, any longstanding friendship, any healthy relationship, any real relationship that's not surface level is going to experience conflict at time. You know, I, I had the amazing opportunity, Megan, to go to Rwanda after the genocide to help train the government in conflict resolution. And I can remember governors there, just their minds being blown by these ideas that really, I was just reading from the scriptures, Matthew 5, that says, you know, leave your gift at the altar, run and be reconciled to your brother. Matthew 18, when someone hurts you to go to them and tell them, um, Ephesians 4, do not let the sun set on your anger, but be diligent in preserving the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. These ideas that they're like, where are this coming from? I'm like, well, they're the eternal truths of scripture that when someone hurts us or we're offended by someone, we should go to that person and we should talk to them about it. What a novel idea so that we would, <laughs> yeah, we would actually talk, not, not go to Facebook, <laughs> you know, not go behind their back, not mm -hmm. vent our anger to somebody else, but go to them and talk to them about it, being diligent or working hard at preserving unity. And so in the midst of, of this world where I think we don't go to the person, what we do is we back deeper into our camp and throw stones. That's not going to go well for us. Look what happened in Rwanda. And we think, well, that will never happen here. They thought it would never happen there. You know, the, the, a mass genocide, a fighting that, that turns into actual very literal fighting. And I don't want that for us. And so I think at some point we're gonna have to understand that we were created by a creator who gave us instruction. And, and through his instruction, we find life. And this is a part of my story, Megan. I was raised in the church, you know, and I just wanted to be free. When I, when I was in college, I thought, hey, I just, I just wanna do what I wanna do and I wanna do it. And at some point I, I came to this place, really through the gospel, looking at the gospel saying, if there's a God and he created everything, then he's going to know better than I how to live. Uh, and I, it was this line that I heard that, that changed my life, the Holy Spirit used to change my life. It wasn't until someone was fully submissive to their master that they truly experienced freedom for the first time. And I thought that's the paradox of the Christian faith, that victory comes through surrender, mm -hmm. that freedom comes through submission. And so I'm like, if there's a God, then I'm not gonna drive, you drive. I'm gonna go wherever you want me to go and I'm gonna do what you want me to do and I will be your servant. And in, in serving, the creator of the heavens and the earth, I found incredible life. Amen. Well, and talk about that a little bit because you you share that, you know, people are in conflict and they don't 
necessarily want to submit to authority, mm -hmm. especially church authority. Yeah. So how do we bridge that particular gap in our church, especially with millennials who don't even see church participation as something they need to do? Yeah. Um, you talk about being spiritual, but not religious. Yeah. So how do we encourage people to say, you know, church is worthwhile and church is so important and it's yeah. vital to the Christian faith. Yeah. Well, think about that story I just shared. It, it was actually a story about a horse. Uh, the horse just wanted to be free and, and he wasn't in, uh, truly, he didn't truly find freedom until he was fully submissive to his master, someone that broke him and protected him and provided for him. And I think that we, th you know, a lot of people will say, yeah, well, me and God are good, but I'm, I'm not interested in the church. Well, then you're not interested in God mm -hmm. because he said, in Hebrews 10, uh, do not forsake the gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, but continue to meet and excel still more. Um, this is something that is important to him. In Hebrews 13, 17, he says, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. Talking about leaders in the church and submit to their authority so that you'll be a joy, not a hindrance. And so if you're like, hey, me and God are good, but me and the church are not, I would say, you don't know God. Like God is someone that you made up in your head and your creativity on your own. You don't really know God. And they say, well, I'm spiritual, but not religious. What does that mean? Usually that means the worship of self. Well, it's just kind of me. What, what happens is you become your own God, which is hedonism, which is really Satanism. It's, it's satanic. James tells us that, that, that whenever we kind of are taken over by selfish ambition, that that's, that's a satanic notion. And so I think if we believe that there's a God, then we have to understand, okay, what source can we trust? Through my studies and experience and research, I've come to a place where that source is the Bible. I believe in His Word. And if I believe in His Word, then I need to receive all of it as instruction suitable for my life, suitable for correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness. And so as I read it, I see, hey, you should belong to a church. You should be under leadership there, under authority there, serving there and thriving there. And the metaphor that the Bible gives us is the body that some are created hands and some are created eyes and, and these different parts of the body. And if I, if I was to like, this is going to be a little bit morbid, but if I was to like take out my spleen and just like hold it here, that's gross, right? That, that's right, it's gross because it's dismembered. It's disconnected. It's not where it should be. And in the same way, when you have someone that says, well, I believe in God, but I'm not a part of the church, that person's dismembered. It's gross. It's, it's, they're going to they're gonna find as much life as a, a spleen or a different organ connected from my nervous system, from my body, uh, would, would find. And it's not going to go well for them. Well, in our culture right now, especially with just the news going on, how can we make the place of church as a place of comfort? Because mm -hmm. I think some people see it as a place of judgment and mm -hmm. not the body, not the true performing body as it should be from scripture. So mm -hmm. how do we, I guess, appeal to the world that this is a place of comfort and this mm -hmm. is a place of goodness? It, it depends on, on what you mean by the world. I would just say every Sunday when I get up to preach, I want to comfort the afflicted, but I also want to afflict the comfortable, right? I want to, I want to call people to change. And another way to say that is, is those who are outside the body, those that don't know Christ, I want to I want to woo them in with the beauty of Jesus uh, for them to understand that He does change their lives, that He does have a calling for them, that He does have a purpose for them. I want, I want to bring them in with the truth of the Scriptures. And then for the believers, I want to sharpen them in truth. Uh, I, you know, we, we are to judge, Paul says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, are we, 
aren't we to judge those inside the body is what he implies. Uh, and the answer is yes. Like for, to people who are in the church, we should say, hey, this is what the scriptures call you to. You should adhere to that. To people outside the church, we should share the gospel. To the non-believer, we should share the beauty of the gospel and invite them into eternal life through Jesus Christ. But to the believer, we should share the truths of the scripture and call them to full obedience and sanctification through the Spirit. Well, and I've heard you preach quite a few times, and every time it seems like you're always talking about a story you share yeah. of sharing the gospel with yeah. a random person that you meet. And I think that's so empowering to hear, and we don't do it enough. Yeah. Um, because that shows what the church is like, and um, that's a powerful example. So keep doing that, please, and keep sharing that story. I will, I'll keep, I'll keep, I won't, I'll never, <laughs> as long as I'm breathing and have a pulse, I'll keep telling people about Jesus, because he changes lives. Mm -hmm. He changed my life. And I get every single day of a front row seat watching Jesus change lives. So I'll never stop telling that story. That's awesome. Yeah. So back to the millennials and cultural issues, what do you see as the top cultural issues that they're concerned about today? Uh, so, so like issues in politics or in the church or what kind of cultural issues? I guess both, especially with life being a big issue in our country right now, LGBTQ issues yeah. right now, gender ethics. Yeah. Is that something that's on the forefront of Christian millennials? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think a lot of, I, you know, I think millennials is such a broad term. Mm -hmm. And depending on where they're at with the church and how, what their exposure to the church is, if they're de-churched, dead-churched, unchurched, uh, I think they are looking at, hey, how does the church define marriage? Uh, how does the, what does the church think about life? And I think a lot of times they're actually put off by that because they see them as political issues. And what I say is like, man, those are not, like long before those ideologies were political issues, they were biblical issues. And I, I, want to help people have a biblical worldview. Mm -hmm. What a biblical worldview is, is, is just the lens through which you see the world. And I believe the world was meant to be seen through the lens of scripture, that, that we have this book that, that gives us instruction, not only on how to live, but how we can live in a right relationship with God, and moreover, who he is, and what, and what he wants from us. And so um, I think those are issues, you know, Global warming, I think, uh, how, you know, is there heaven and hell? And some, some of the questions they're asking are really basic doctrinal questions of uh, how do we know that there's a God and uh, how do we live with him forever and what does heaven look like and what happens when you die? Right. Some of those questions. So as encouragement to the older generation speaking into the younger generation, what do you tell them that they could do to encourage millennials to look from a biblical worldview and to stand on that? Because I think sometimes that's been neglected by older generations to speak into that. Yeah. So what would you tell them, yeah. just as encouragement to not be so scared off, mm -hmm. but to speak life into younger generations? Yeah, I think you can always share truth, but you don't have to be a jerk. And I know that just, that has some teeth to it. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important is for the older generation to understand that, that you can always sit down with someone and say, hey, this is the truth. Like, this is what the scriptures say. This is, this is how um, you should live. But you can also make that attractive by the way you live and by the way you love people, by the way you care for someone, by the way you're willing to invite someone at your dinner table that's not like you, 
the way that you're building bridges with people and not burning them down, not yeah. breaking them, the way that you uh, you know care for for everyone and love everyone. I believe Jesus would have done that. I believe Jesus would have would have brought everyone in. Hey, everybody, everybody's welcome. I love everybody. Everybody come. And then he would have said, hey, and by the way, this is how we live so that we will get the most out of life. This is how we find life. And it's that balance of what we call truth and grace. Yeah. And they're both important and they have to sit side by side. That, that understanding that we've been shown so much grace that God has accepted us exactly as we are. And yet he won't allow us to stay there that His Holy Spirit sanctifies us, which sanctification is just a 10-cent seminary word, which means changing us to be like Jesus, Absolutely. you know. So. Absolutely. Well, as we go into the elections, just bringing it back to millennials, what encouragement would you give to them to bridge politics as something that can be good? As Galatians 6.10 says, as we have opportunity, do good, and not to see it as a divisive thing in our country, but to see it as an opportunity, especially as Christian witnesses yeah. in our faith. Yeah, I just would counter with Galatians 6.9 and say, do not grow weary. Mm -hmm. Do not grow weary in the challenges that you see around you. We exist in a broken, fallen world. And so a part of not growing weary is doing your part in the harvest. And, and a part of the role that you have to play in the harvest is, is as you live out your faith in this fallen world is to vote, is to understand the issues, understand the candidates, uh, understand the, the, the challenges of the world, understand the things that God cares about. You know, approach it with a biblical worldview and, and vote because without a vote, you lose your voice. Right, well, we at My Faith Votes say pray, think, vote. Yeah. Begin with prayer, think well from a biblical worldview, and then put your faith into action. I like that better. <laughs> I'm gonna steal that. <laughs> pray, faith, pray, think, uh, I'm vote. sorry, pray, think, vote. Yeah. Pray, think, vote. That's it, and that's part of adulting. Let's so, go. JP, I love thank it. you so Such much. Such a privilege. Great to talk with you. Such a privilege. Thank Such you for it. Appreciate it. God bless. If you'd like to learn more about what we do at My Faith Votes, go to myfaithvotes.org.